the many who are visitors, we've been uh, doing a series since September, um, 10, 10 in 10. The theme, and Rose already alluded to it, Fitzroy is life in all its fullness, John chapter 10, verse 10. And we've been trying to work out in 10 passages of scripture what that looks like. What does it mean to live life in all its fullness? What is it to be a follower of Jesus uh, in all its potential? And so we're at number 10, just before Christmas Day, well-timed indeed. And we will come to it as we go. I want to start with Garth Graham's father, who used to drag me out on a all kinds of weekday evenings to presentries all around. Uh, I think all of them that we did were in the north of Ireland. Um, I was the young chaplain. I was once um, in Deravolgi. <clears throat> I'd been the youth development officer for the church in the Republic of Ireland. And so there was this foolish um, belief that stockmen could tell these elders or ministers and presentries how to be missionally relevant in what was then still the 20th century. And really, there was no great genius to it, I don't think. Yeah, we could have talked about drum kits and we could have talked about video bars that uh, we were famous for in First Doctrine when I was the minister there when we built a... Uh, a bar for non-alcoholic may I add cocktails and we had the biggest video screen at the time in, um, in, in Ireland and we showed videos and then I got up and did what we did at all the coffee bars down through the years we could have done all that stuff but to me that wasn't the secret of world evangelism then I can remember Frank Seller moderator last year um, he was Minister in Adelaide Road, I was the Youth Development Officer, so we had lots of meetings in Belfast and we would travel up together and back down together to Dublin and have many great conversations on the way down. And when I was moving to Dublin, just in those early days, uh, 1991, uh, Frank, over a cup of coffee, said to me, now I want to tell you something about Dublin, Steve. He said, in the North, proclamation is still the important way to communicate the truth. But when you come down here, it changes to be relational. It's not so much about the proclamation of the gospel as the relational living out of the gospel. 1991 in Dublin. It seems to me that we've caught up with that in 2017 in Belfast. Third story, and then I'll come to the secret of world evangelism that's obvious to us all. Pastoral dilemmas in Deravolgi. Um, 88 students just living right there with them. What a joy that was. Happy memories. Memories of the night that I woke up about 2 in the morning and Janice's cousin Tim's face was right here and he was saying, you've got to get up, you've got to get up, you've got to get up. And I looked at the clock and it was about 2 o'clock and the ambulance was there and emergency services had arrived because one of our students, bless him, as they were running through... That uh, some people have lived in Derivalgi, you, you know this, but if you're on the first floor and you're running through the flats, there's all kinds of uh, fire doors. And they were running through the doors, and his mate knocked the door open, and he went to run through the door that was open, and he looked back to see who was coming behind him, and when he turned round, bang, the door hit him in the head, and he was out cold, and the ambulance was there. It was two in the morning, and we're off to A&E. Oh, we loved those days. 
But when people say to me, what was the greatest pastoral dilemma of living with 88 students for 15 years? I don't talk about drugs and I don't talk about um, drink and I don't talk about particularly hedonism. Um, I really talk about one issue that came back again and again and again. Might be the unexpected in Gillian's talk. But the number of students that came to me and would say to me, Steve, I don't believe that God loves me. It started to happen early on when I came to Daravogi, and then it became quite a recurring theme, and one that I couldn't quite understand. You see, you know the students. I did this sermon, not the way it is this morning, but a rough mix of it way back when I was doing a sabbatical in Vancouver. And I was trying to use an example of a student that I might know. And Patrick Sterling, Ross's nephew, was in the congregation. So I was able to say, like, I mean, there are all students. I knew them. I mean, Patrick here tonight. I used to be the minister of his parents. His dad used to be my doctor. His sister was in my class at school. And um, I used to be under his other sister as my boss. You know the students in Belfast. And so I was able to say this. When a student came to me and said, I don't believe God loves me, I was usually able to say, but you come from a Christian family that has told you God loves you. Yeah. And you come from a church, and I'm sure that church has preached that God loves you. Yeah. And last year, did you not do a beach mission where you actually told children that God loved them? Yeah. Yeah. So what seems to be the problem? Well, I don't believe God loves me. Now, the pastor, the chaplain, really struggled with that. For Now, you ministered to it as best you could, but you were thinking, how can that be? They know God loves them. They tell people God loves them, but they don't know God loves them. This was going from the head to something more tangible in the sense of God's love. And then my friend David Dark, who's my intelligent best man, not that Tim my, was my unintelligent, I better be careful, Tim will be here tomorrow morning, I better not say that tomorrow morning, but uh, Dave Dark was my best man, he's now seen as critic and author, he'll appear in all kinds of uh, American magazines, etc., and write some very intelligent books, some of his books have been so intelligent that I haven't a clue what he's saying, and so the last book he wrote, his wife wrote in the, as he was writing it, his wife just leaned over the top of him and said, love thy reader, which basically meant, please bring it down, David, to a kind of level that Steve would understand. David uh, would be the one who would give me all these books and tell me about all these books and the books I need to read and just me to Douglas Copeland and various other people. And in the middle of this, he told me about a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. And Neil Postman, this is a book from way back, but it was the first study that was done on the influence of television on the lives of human beings. Now, I think my children think I'm a wee bit old. You're still watching television, Dad. You know the way we still have schedules and we still watch Madame Sackbury at nine o'clock? How old school is that? This generation, they're on the computer and they watch it on YouTube or they do it in all kinds of other ways. But anyway, for those of us who are a little bit older... Television, the impact of television, let me tell you, the impact of social media and the internet, that's for a whole other book. But Postman came up with this idea that the impact of television was such that it moved us from being mainly objective on how we save information to being subjective. He would have said that if you learned by linear on a blackboard 
or in a book, then it was mainly the objective side of your brain that saved the information. But if you grew up in a generation where it was image-dominated, then the subjective side of your brain was that which saved most of the information. Now that's not 100%, 0, 0, 100%. But we're on a a kind of a spectrum and, and the shift is that most of us now probably get things more subjectively than a generation before. So if I'd been in a church preaching this when I was chaplain, I would have said, if you remember the first television that came into the house, you probably learned linear. And you're probably more objective. So if I say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you remember that first TV coming into your house, you're linear, you're objective. And you take that as a statement and you decide whether you believe it or not. But if you say it to a generation now, and it's the subjective that thinks about it, they will say, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if it's true. And they will need to almost feel and know in the grow of their hearts that it's true. Because the words no longer objectively work the way they used to work. Now, I don't know the dissertations might be on that that might say whether that Neil Postman theory is right or wrong. But I'll tell you pastorally and missionally, it's good advice. It's good advice. Because back to Frank. Down here it's more relational than proclamational. It's more subjective than objective. The secret of world evangelism. The secret of the new days where people think subjectively rather than objectively. It's not a new thing. It's been right, riven through this morning's service at various stages of it. The secret to it all is the word became flesh and moved into the neighbourhood. That was the secret to take out with Garth's father to presbyteries. It's moved. We think it's objective. We think if we proclaim it faithfully, people will still get it. But no, we've got to be relational. We've got to be, forgive me to say it, biblical again. It's got to be the word made flesh. It's got to move into the neighbourhood It's got to have its impact in more than objective truth. So the baby, crying on the doorstep, tells us that God was into the subjective rather than just the objective. 39 books had already been printed. 39 books were already been read. We already had insight into the revelation of God. But God decided that the words... An objective truth were not sufficient to be a revelation of who he was. The word had to become flesh. And that pastorally changes a lot of stuff. Because as I go to people in their hospitals over these last number of days, or um, as we were with the Goff family and Uh, in the loss of Dennis, to be able to read John chapter 1 and bring us into Christmas and then take us to Hebrews chapter 4 where it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
we can say that we're not talking about a God out in space who has shouted some truths objectively into our lives that we must try and cling on to at times of struggle or hurt or pain or loss. We can say that God became one of us. God understands. God experienced it. God can empathise and God can sympathise. Because he's not shouting at us from a place that he cannot deal with what we have. Or ever understand what we're going through. The word became flesh and moved in among us. And so missionally as well. I learned this best and I've quoted it many times. Like most of this sermon is not a repeat, it's a remix. Um, but jails, Wani Church and Gugaletu where when you went in there into the huge township that is Gugaletu on the Cape Flats just outside Cape Town and you went anywhere on those flats or anywhere certainly in the Gugaletu part of it and you said we're working with Jails Wani Church oh Jails Wani Church they're the people that help us when we're in trouble because Spiwo the minister kept saying to us that the ministry we have to have is God flesh on. And fascinatingly, he used to say long before Bono mentioned it, we need God flesh on on the doorsteps. We need a baby that cries on the doorsteps. We need Jesus on the doorsteps of the needs of the people around us. And so they would ask, what were the needs? The needs were that people at that stage in the early 2000s were dying of AIDS all the time. Instead of a children's talk, they had a testimony for people with HIV in the church. Either people giving a testimony of how they were struggling with it, or people coming to give advice for those who were carers who were struggling with it. And so what the church did was, when somebody died of HIV AIDS and left a 10-year-old or an 8-year-old, they could ring jails, Wani, and on the doorstep within minutes was somebody from the church to help the children bring each other up without parents. Spiewell was always on about God flash on on the doorstep. God flash on on the doorstep. And so when Donegal Pass came into our ownership, the school of music suddenly became unexpectedly ours. It was God flash on on the doorstep that was my first thought. What do they need on their doorsteps? Could we partner with them to find out what they would need on their doorsteps? Would they partner with us so that we can give them the needs that they have on the doorstep? Because the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Whether it's the Holy Lands and the struggle with students over March the 17th, among other days of the year. Or whether it's in Lower Ormo through Mornington and all that Heather and her team are doing there. Whether it's through the food bank and Brenda and all that's going on there. Whether it's in the school with... Paul or Caitlin or the ones that work in Botanic with all those different 27 different languages, whether it's Donegal Pass with all the divisions that there are in that community and all the educational needs of that community, the unemployment needs of our community, the secret of mission for Fitzroy is a baby in straw, a baby without a room or a bed. The secret of world evangelism is the word became flesh and moved in to our neighbourhood. 
And as the father sent the baby that cried in the doorstep, so the baby grew up to send me and you to be God's word made flesh, whatever our neighbourhood is. Let's pray. Lord, again, we pray you would help us to dig through all the clutter and find the baby under the trash of Christmas. The baby that has got a full revelation of God right there. Not written in tablets of stone, but listening, close enough to whisper, close enough to kiss her, close enough to be broken, the word made flesh. May we be those who identify ourselves with the baby, with the word, with the word made flesh. And with the word made flesh moving into our neighborhoods. May we identify and may we follow into Christmas and 2018. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.